Hey you. I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Acceptance is the key to life and mental wellness. One of several profound phrases from today's guest, Mark. Mark's battle with addiction and sexual identity stemmed from his inability to accept who he truly was. Once he embraced himself fully, not only did he find happiness in himself, but he's now using his own journey to help others who struggle in similar ways. Stay tuned for Mark's inspiring story of acceptance. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetically You Podcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing your story with our listeners today. And thank you, ladies, for having me on. This is a pleasure. Um, you have had one hell of a journey from childhood trauma to overdoses to sexual identity issues and overcoming it all. Your journey has been nothing short of amazing. Why don't we start with what led you to your addiction? Well, you know, I it's interesting. I was I was posed with this question the other day and um, you know, if you look all the way back through my childhood, really my addictions didn't start with substance. It didn't start with the actual addiction to alcohol or drugs or peer pressure or anything like that. Rather, my addiction was an addiction to escape, an addiction to actually feel like a different, like, like the person that I wasn't because I didn't like who I was. Um, and this started at a very early age. I mean, like six years old. I remember, wow. yeah, I remember like feeling like I wanted to commit suicide before I even knew what suicide was. Um, I remember looking down at my body and being like, I don't think I'm in the right body. Like, I don't, I think that I'm supposed to be a girl because I like little boy. I like my other, you know, boys in my class and stuff. And, I was just, I was so confused. And um, so early on, I mean, I, I found out how to like strangle myself um, oh my so that I would pass out and then I would wake back up and I'd be all tingly and things like that. Um, and then I, you know, in, in the book that I just wrote, I also talk about how at a very early age, I started doing little um, obsessive compulsive things. And if we look at addictions and, and what they like, the neural circuits that people go through with addictions is very similar to the same thing that happens with people with OCD. And so and that's obsessive compulsive disorder. And so, you know, like I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would think that I needed to go check all the drawers downstairs in my kitchen. So I would go do that and then I would check all the windows and and do all of that. And it was so weird, um, but for some reason that helped me to escape. And then right about that time, um, I was introduced to drugs and alcohol. And that was that just ultimately served as a better fix to escaping than any other thing that I had tried so far. Um, and so for, you know, from about 12 years old until, um, fairly recently or relatively recently, um, it's been drugs and alcohol. At 12. Oh my goodness. Like, how did you, were you hiding that from your family? Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was a slow process, you know? So at 12, it was like, I was introduced to it and then I would kind of fantasize about it. And I was, I was still using some other techniques to escape. 
um, masturbation, sex, you know, all that type of stuff started to, was working as well to escape. Um, and also at that time I, uh, began to get involved into sports and, you know, I think sports gave me a, a way to express like a way, an identity that I could assume that was so very different from the identity that I was trying to push away. So, um, you know, I, I stopped doing acting classes and things like that because I was, I was real into that. But then I kind of learned that theater and acting was kind of gay. So I stopped it. You know, I stopped, um, I stopped competitive swimming because I had to wear a Speedo and I learned that Speedos were kind of gay. So I started doing all these like real masculine things to, you know, make myself feel that. And, and at this stage of life at about 12 years old, you know, you're able to, to now choose an identity that, that like helps you be who you think you're supposed to be. And so, you know, I didn't need to escape all the time. Rather, it was kind of, I'm becoming, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. And when I had the chances to, to escape, I did. So weddings and things like that, I would find ways to find the alcohol. Um, or um, I remember stealing like little nuggets of weed from my cousins and my brother and, you know, yeah, yeah. Just every way that I possibly could. Um, the little, the little things in the, um, the little liquor bottles in the, in the airplane. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Found ways to steal those too. I was a I was a conniving little guy. You're resourceful. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, was anyone in your life recognizing that you were struggling? Yeah, but it didn't come out in that way. Um, so it mine came out in a, and I think a lot of kids kind of experience this similar thing too. Um, that my my mom sent me to a childhood psychologist because mm -hmm. I was having a lot of difficulties in schools, um, couldn't pay attention. I also, you know, it, I felt like I needed to be a class clown so that I could like uh, kind of mask so that people didn't see the real me. I sure. did, right. things, you know, I, I outwardly acted out um, and did stuff. And so I talk about that a little bit in my book too. Some of those things are kind of funny that I went through. Um, but yeah, it was mostly, you know, the ADHD. So they, the psychologist said that I had ADHD, would need to be on medications and, you know, had conduct disorder problems and things like that. And um, so they noticed something was going on, but didn't really know why. And the see i i had found something that worked so when i was seeing those psychologists i would just lie to them you know right. and then, yeah and then i got that medication for adderall and i thought it was cool and i was like yes i get to be on adderall like i've got adhd i've got it you know i've got this thing that i get to take these meds and oh man yeah so <laughs> is all of this stemmed from like your sexual identity. Is that like really what it comes down to? Or like you tried to stop yourself from becoming basically, right? Yeah. Um, so was all of that in a cover up because you 
you didn't feel comfortable coming out as gay, like being gay in, in your household? Was that something that ever was talked about? You know, the even the term gay, like, was kind of a hush-hush type of term. Like, we didn't use those types of words. Um, my family was kind of a shove it under the rug and let's not talk about difficult things. And when, I mean, yeah, when I noticed that I had these, um, these tendencies, I did not know what to do with them because they weren't in my vernacular. You know, I wasn't able to talk with my parents about it. Um, I remember hearing that AIDS came out, right? Like mm -hmm. basically when I was about six or seven years old, it was like 1993, 94. AIDS was just like getting media attention and storming through the gay community. And um, I remember uh, asking my mom shortly after I had been molested, I asked my mom what, um, like how people got AIDS because I thought that I had AIDS or I thought that I might have AIDS. Yeah. Um, and so she kind of confirmed that it was through um, boy and boys having contact with other boys sexually. So, so then, you know, then a huge, huge fear came over me. Um, and so I, I had two different fears that were like really instrumental in me not, not being it or not, not even wanting to express my gay self. And one was the fear of condemnation. Like, I was going to go to hell if mm -hmm. I came out and if I actually lived this way. Um, the other was if I live this way, I'm going to die of AIDS, you know? So like either way, I just, I wasn't, I just wasn't coming out. Like I would, I would rather die, you know, right. I did that from an early age. And then, okay. So you just said you were molested too. So how old were you when you were sexually abused? Um, it was uh, about six years old and maybe a little bit before that, the, the timing's kind of unclear. Um, and, and, you know, af after that, there's a lot of kind of foggy memories, you know, um, I remember the situation very, very clearly, but then after that, there's a lot of foggy memories until I was able to, um, start connecting with other identities, you know? I, just, I wish that people would talk about things more like this because even like young kids, like middle schoolers, like if they had somebody to connect to and recognize that they aren't alone, I just like everything would be so different, right? Yeah, big time, big time. Um, I, that's like my whole purpose in doing what I'm doing and, and starting this movement in the first place is like, because if I had a way to actually communicate it, to actually come out and say this type of stuff, I wouldn't have felt so alone. Right. You know, alone with, I mean, my, my family loved me. I mean, I was surrounded by love. I grew up in a great home, like, you know, and, and, and yet I still ended up more messed up than somebody who grows up in, I don't know, like Saudi Arabia and they're, mom was just blown up by a bomb type, right. you know? And it's like, why, why did my trauma end up this bad? 
Right. Yeah. Just because I couldn't express it. (laughs) When did your addictions really start overcoming who you were? I think from the very first time that I tried a substance, it really started to become a big problem and started to become who who I was. Honestly, I then I remembered that my brother had this little little pipe, and I was like, "Well, I might go try that and see what that's like." And so I I took some pot and went out into the woods and smoked it and found that release. I found that escape. And from then on, like literally every, my every waking moment was like, how am I going to get that type of high again? Um, You know, I would be sitting in school, like, when am I going to get high again? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would wake up and go, when when am I going to be able to get high? So I started at a very early age and in, in, in school, I started waking up early so I could go into the bathroom, smoke weed, and then act like I was still asleep when my parents would come up and wake me up so that I would be high for the morning. And then, you know, in the school bus, like wh- wherever, what, however I was able to do it. Um, and then I learned about cough medicine pills and, you know, it just, just everything. It was it was a mess. Isolated from there, yeah. yeah. And that's why I ended up in a um, in a troubled youth in in that in that system for a couple of years too. Is because my parents then they saw that okay, this isn't just ADHD. Now this is now we think we have somebody who may be getting addictions um, and who may you know hurt himself or somebody else through this. So. So then you ended up in the trouble. I did not realize that you mm-hmm. ended up in the troubled teen teen industry then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I went um, first. I went to a wilderness program out in Utah, and to me, I when I got out there, so I had been like idolizing Jim Morrison for the past couple of years, and so when I got out to the desert, and I knew all of his poetry back and backwards and forwards. And I was like, this is where he wrote all that magical poetry was like in the desert. This is where he found his inspiration. I was like, how beautiful. I was like, I'm in a wonderful spot. So I just, I started writing a whole bunch of poetry and, um, you know, I just, I really kind of liked it out there. I didn't have you know, this, this like horrible, like, oh, this is a punishment. It wasn't until after the, I felt like the wilderness program to me was like, oh man, this is great. No school. All I, I get to cook on a fire, wake up under the stars. Yeah. There were tough days for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it was, it was kind of fun. So then where did you go from there? Uh, I went to a boarding school that was kind of like a a low-key type therapeutic boarding school. And while I was at that program, um, they had a lot of restrictions and it was very structured and it was, it was, it was a, it was just all therapy, all therapy, like you're wrong. We need to fix you, all this type of stuff. So whenever they told me to do something, I did like the complete opposite. And so I started getting in a lot of trouble. And as these consequences started to build up on each other, I increased in my anger. 
And I started to rebel in even, even more ways. And ultimately I ended up getting on a 15 foot rule from everybody. So nobody could come within 15 feet of me because I was a harm to myself and other people. And then I was even on a 15 foot roll from all the staff. So nobody, I wasn't allowed to be close to anybody. I remember getting a whole group of the guys together and trying to come up with a plan to burn the buildings down. And so we were going to burn the school down. And then they found out who was, uh, they, somebody ratted on me and um, said that I was the leader of the pack. And so they kicked me out of there. And I was headed to um, a place called Provo Canyon down in um, Utah. And my parents got a phone call from my aunt who had just sold a ranch to these two loving Christian people who were opening a youth treatment facility that was ranch style living. And so my parents were like, oh, how perfect. Now he's gonna learn Jesus while he also gets fixed. And that was their biggest concern. And so um, so when I went to that, that program was actually quite scary. Um, because they did conversion therapy, like demon possession stuff. Um, so when I first came, they were like, you're actually possessed by a demon. And after some time, after like months of being there, you know, I really believed it. But at the time when I first got there, I was like, this is absolutely insane. And so me and another kid, we ran away. And then after running away, they were like, um, you can't do that. So now we're going to send you on our own wilderness program. And they made a hike up and down hills, carrying these big old logs and rocks. And we'd have to take them all the way up the hill and then all the way back down the hill with people just walking behind us, kind of jeering at us and, and poking at us and, um, then we'd go on these death marches on the road with just all these rocks in our backpacks and they were just driving behind us in a car and would honk if we sat down. I mean, it was, it was miserable. That's and insane. Then, yeah. yeah. And then they isolated me in the woods for 10 days. They said, they said, okay, we're going to drive you out to this place. That's 10 miles away from any other person. And then we're setting cameras up and you can't go within five feet of your tent. And they gave me rice and beans and that was it. And they said, you can't go five feet from your tent. And I go, we're in bear country. I was like, what do you mean? I can't go five feet from my tent. I was like, what if I need to use the bathroom? They're like, nope, you have to do it right here. And they said there were cameras in the trees and that if I, if I didn't do it, then I would have to restart. And so I was like, oh my God. That, that, this is the problem too, is because it's like, you know, somebody's having troubles and instead of being like, you know what, maybe we should sit down and like get to the root of the problem, see if something has happened, like hear this person, listen to this person's story. We're like, let's break this person down. Right. Yeah. Like that's exactly what that was. And how old were, like, how old do you think you were when that whole, at, at least at this school was? 
I was 15. Like, you're just coming into your own. You're just figuring out life and who you are. Like, the last thing you need is somebody abusing you. I mean, this is like torture. (laughs) Yeah, it's some serious emotional abuse um, that that we went through at that program. So after you go through these schools, like, do you go back home then at that point? Or what happens from there? Yeah, for me, I ended up graduating high school through that program. And so when I left, it was... Um, actually I, you know, I had been absolutely brainwashed at the place and I, so I thought that I wanted to be in, in youth ministry and be a pastor. So I came back and did, was planning on doing my own type of, um, ministry. And I quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, so I, I started going to college to get my degree in psychology um, and began studying for that. But um, drugs and alcohol were there and it's it, di- it, it wasn't too long till that became a serious problem. And I got kicked out of my first college um, and then took a took a little bit of time off and then went back to school. And yeah. Eventually, you you do you get through college fully? So yeah, I mean, you come out of the program and you're absolutely lost. And you look around and you're like, oh, these are all my friends. They all kind of know who they are and what they want to do. And I've just been told who I'm supposed to be and right. what I'm supposed to do. And so my my confusion, my identity, my my sexuality, like everything was all completely messed up. And um, and so what I did was just start reaching anywhere that I could could find. Um, and drugs and alcohol are one of the easiest places to find it. And so I got deep into drugs and alcohol. And I, I knew, though, I knew that I really wanted to come out as gay at this time. So okay. there was one instance where I ended up eating a whole bunch of mushrooms and mescal at the same time and some ecstasy and I was tripping so hard that I thought that I had died and that my friend had become an agent of purgatory and that if he touched me it was going to send me to hell and the ultimatum that I had was either finally express my lie to this agent of hell or let him touch me and send me to hell. Yeah. So after hours of running from him and screaming and, and, and just absolute madness, I told him that I was gay. <laughs> and so I actually did come out at, you know, 18 years old. Wow. And the next morning, of course, I was like, you know, I was kidding, right? <laughs> Like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then it's easy to hide behind. Like I was high. So like, that's why I said it, you know? Like- exactly. Exactly. Um, a week later though, my, one of my friends from the youth rehab program, he was sent to that youth rehab program because his parents are, are, were evangelical Christians and he was, he was gay. And 
when you first go to those programs, when you first go to this program, they sit you down in a group and they ask you to tell your story. Why are you at this program? What did you do wrong? Not who are you? What did you do wrong? Yeah. You know, because that is actually who you are. What you're doing wrong is who you are. Right. Um, and so he sat down and goes, well, I'm here because I'm gay. <laughs> and we were all just like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. And for me, what I heard was that confidence. I want to be like that guy. That is amazing that he just did that. Yeah. And in so him kindled this friendship and this brotherhood and this love. And so a after I graduated, it was hard for him. And then, so he, he, when he graduated, he, left Seattle because his parents were still like, why did this not work? We yeah. see this program. You've, they, he had been to a couple other conversion therapy programs. He came down to visit me. He ran away and hitchhiked across the United States to come visit me. And he, and my mom caught us having sex. Oh. Um, oh. And, but it was my first time like experiencing like what it really felt like to like love who I wanted to love. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. yeah. It felt so good. And we had taken long walks on the beach, just had a wonderful time, but drugs were already in my life. And so unfortunately I introduced him to drugs. Oh gosh. And yeah, and yeah that, um, that led him down a horrible path. And once I got into college, we were talking a lot and he was helping me to start coming out to my friends and my family. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and one day he said, Mark, I, I found this, this concoction of drugs that if we take it together, it's like, we're both tripping at a, on a whole different plane. It's like, we'll be do It's like, we'll be together. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. I want you to be here so bad. Let's do it. So he sent me the pack of drugs and we were going to take it together. And I looked at him and I said, oh, well, I've got to go to this music festival this weekend. So I'm going to take them next weekend. And I didn't call him. I just hopped in the car with my friends and went to the music festival. And when I got back, I had learned that he was now in a coma and um the oh and he never woke up from his coma. Oh my god. Oh no. Yeah. And and after after this, I uh I just I really kind of shut down the the idea of even coming out. Um and I got really deep into um into drugs and just kind of barely navigated my way through school. Oh my gosh. Oh. That's, that's like heartbreaking, especially mm -hmm. for you. Like ugh, the whole situation is just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But so you, you're struggling with who you are and you're going through life barely, right? Barely alive, really. Um, at, at what point, like when did you hit rock bottom really? Like when did you hit the point where you were like, okay, well, this is not going to work for me anymore. This is not what I want in my life. Yeah, I love that question um, because I, I entered a lot of different rock bottoms. Okay. Um, I don't think there's like one in particular rock bottom. And I could talk about each of them very intensely. But, 
you know, I think that uh, each time I developed a serious habit with a drug, you know, I went into its own rock bottom. So I had my rock bottom on sure. pain, you know, at a fairly early age, I had my rock bottom on ecstasy. And, and then I had my rock bottom when it came to heroin and opiates. And, you know, that was, that was the last of the drugs really was the heroin. Um, that was the deepest down that I ever went with that stuff. And I remember, you know, I remember taking it and hoping like I would put on Nirvana on my headphones or blind melon. And I would hope that I would die listening to, you know, just like um, Kurt Cobain or Shannon Hoon. I yeah. wanted, I wanted to die. And I remember shooting myself up, hoping that it would finally take me. And um, that was a pretty big rock bottom. Um, and at that, at that point I was prostituting myself. So I was still closet. I, nobody knew, Yeah. But, you know, I even had a girlfriend on the side, but then afterwards and I would, I would leave and I would go to, um, the, the gay porn shop and they had little booths and I would go in there and I would prostitute myself out, um, to men. And I would, uh, just, you know, some horrible, horrible things happened yeah. there that are still in my memory that I've worked through, but there, it's still, yeah, that was a pretty, pretty bad rock bottom. Um, and I wanted, and then, and then I got a, a my ex-wife pregnant. Um, and so when that happened and I learned that I was going to be a father, I started swimming desperately to find out how I was going to be a father um, because I did, I, I wanted to be the best father that I could be. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so I, I tried to start getting sober. I started Suboxone and methadone programs and counseling and therapy. Um, but ultimately I kept finding ways that I could get a little bit higher you know, maybe taking a little bit more of it or, um, or, or finding this type of, um, booze concoction worked or something like that, you know? So, yeah. You were battling all of this up until your son was born and even at the start of that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two weeks before he was born, I put down the needle and I started getting sober. Um, I started taking methadone and I, um, but I was drinking a lot the night before the night that the day actually that he was born, I started drinking at nine o'clock moonshine at nine o'clock in the morning. and was passed out by noon and I woke up at like, six o'clock in the afternoon and my wife was in labor. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so we went to the hospital and, you know, ultimately I was kind of sober by the time he was born. Um, and, but within two weeks after he was born, I was, I, I would say that I was going to NA, but I was really meeting people at NA who had heroin and then I would go into the bathroom, shoot up and then go home. And um, so within two weeks I was, I was back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So when did when did your life like take this this giant 180 to who you are today? Like what made you finally say I have to do this for me or I have to do this for my son? What what got you there? Yeah. Um, so I ended up in a intense rehab, um, an adult rehab. Like I really want to do this and I try. Um, but then I fall in love with, with this man. Um, so I, I actually try to come out. I come out to this little small community in Colorado and I fall in love with this man who then tells me after we make love that he has HIV and I freak out oh, no. and I use that as an excuse to start um, using drugs again. So I go out and I go see a psychologist and get my Xanax prescription. I start smoking weed because I'm in Colorado and it's legal and I start drinking. And so I left my sober living community and for the next couple of years there, things got um, actually a little bit better, honestly. Um, I was using in moderation and I, I found a job as working as a mental health counselor and doing vocational rehab for severely mentally ill. And it was going really well. Um, and then it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So one night I had gotten way too messed up at a at a, a company party and I woke up and this woman was raping me. The next day I went to work and on my computer was this big picture that that had this had this guy like waving on it and it said, Go ahead call the cops. They can't unrape you. And, you know, because of my past with, um, with my sexual identity and trauma and stuff, I almost fainted right then and there and just got extremely horrible feeling. And I had to leave work and I went to the victim advocacy place in Montana, you know, the courts, and I said, what, what can I do? Like, um, is there anything that I can do? And they said, no, actually, if you try to present this to the courts, it's a 90% chance that you will be convicted of rape because, oh you're, they said, because you're a male in the state of Montana. If you tried to claim that somebody, a woman raped you, then you are going to be charged with rape and you're going to be in jail. And at that moment, I like everything just like tunneled vision down. And I just, I went into, it was, it was like for a long time in my life, I had wanted to be alone. I had pushed other people away and now it finally happened. Every, it was like, I was completely alone. Nobody was there for me. Nobody, there was no help. I was absolutely alone. At least that's the way I felt. Yeah. And so I went into drinking for death. Like I wanted to drink to die. Yeah. And, um, and I almost did, but it got, it got so, so bad that, um, I wouldn't even leave my house. Um, I wouldn't even open the door for the pizza man. I would leave a note outside that was like, leave the pizza here. Here's your money. And it was just so miserable. And my cousin came out just really randomly. My cousin came out and he 
goes, Mark, let's just go for a walk. Like I'm just, I'm just out here and I'm in Montana. Let's go for a walk. And while we're on this walk, I remember him looking at like little flowers poking up in the ground and just being like, is it that beautiful? And I was like, Oh my God, how does he think these little things are beautiful? And I, re I remember just feeling like I want to think things are beautiful again. Like it's been such a long time since I've been able to see beauty in this world. And I, uh, you know, I, I just thought I was like, well, he goes to this program where, you know, he meets with other people who are trying to get sober and maybe I should try that too. So I went and, um, and for the next couple of months, I just, I stopped drinking and, and start and, and good stuff started to happen to me. I, I wasn't woke, waking up all like drunk and hung over and I was like, wow, this is great. And then, you know, with that, I think I began to become more attractive to other people sure. and yeah. attracted the love of um, my next wife, Jess, who um, she just brought out the best in me. I mean, she's, she's my soulmate for sure. Like she brought out who I truly was and it scared the living shit out of me, honestly. Yeah. For the first time in my life, somebody loved me completely. And I even came out to her. I said that I was bisexual and she accepted me and loved me. And, um, and it scared me. So I ended up relapsing a couple of times. And during those times, I almost killed her. And I tried to, um, tried to overdose and I ended up in the hospital. I ended up in jail one night. And then the last night I ended up on the side of a bridge that I was trying to jump off of, but I was too drunk to jump off of it. And that was the very end. <laughs> After that, the next morning I woke up and I went to the gym and I said, and I, I got in the pool and I started swimming and it was so hard. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe, like I used to be competitive swimming when I was like nine years old. And I remember doing this and it was not this hard. I was like, <laughs> and I, I got out and this guy was sitting beside me in the sauna and he goes, you should train for a triathlon. And I was like, dude, you're freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, but, I also looked at him and I was like, if, if he could do it, then maybe, maybe I can too. Yeah. And so I said, you know, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I just, I looked around in the rooms of, of the meetings that I was going to, I was like, if this person could stay sober, then I probably can too. And I started meeting other triathletes and I was like, if they did it, man, I, I think I can do it too. And like, I just started training and started working out and, and things that things that triathlon like in, uh, brought into my life helped me to begin to accept, like finally start accepting things in my life that just going to those groups wasn't really doing like just saying I'm an alcoholic. That wasn't enough. Yeah 
triathlon showed me that, Mark, you're a terrible swimmer and you have to learn. You have to start from this spot and grow. And so I started, I, I looked at myself in triathlon. I was like, well, if I, if I got to start here to get there, then I probably have to do the same thing in recovery. I probably have to start here to get there. Right. Like people mm -hmm. did. And so when I, when I finally accepted myself and, and my weaknesses, I was able to start building this confidence in this new person. And, and then I experienced, I started to experience the fruits of life. You know, things started to begin to get beautiful in my life and I started to feel it, you know, and it was so wonderful. And I just, I kept on going with it and triathlon kept bringing up these little things like um, they, my coach said that eventually during the race, I was going to have to run in spandex, right? For me, that was like, no way am I going to run publicly in spandex. I barely like running publicly anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, I had so much fear about it, um, but when I when I accepted it and I and I did it, I was like, "Why haven't I always been running in spandex? Like, it feels amazing." I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and then later on down the road, there's some other things that happen. Like, uh, I lost my swimsuit, and so I had to run to dicks. Yeah. I lost my swimsuit, so I had to run to Dick's Sporting Goods to go get a new one. And the only thing they had there was a little teeny Speedo. And at this point, I was like, I'm, I, I only had a couple of weeks left until my, my big race. I was like, there is no way that I'm going to miss my training session. So I'm going to wear this little Speedo. Yeah. And I put on that little Speedo that I had been scared of since like nine years old. And I put it on and I remember looking at myself in the, in the bathroom being like, damn. And I texted a picture to my, to my ex-wife and she sent me back the emoji with like big eyes, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's doing this. And um, things really changed from there. I, I got home after that swim and she said, you know, Mark, you're a completely different person from the first person that I met. And there's some of these things that I just don't know if I can, if I can handle that if I like anymore. And, and when, when that came, um, I, I said, you know what? I do like it. I do like who I'm becoming. I do like who I've become. I like to wear a Speedo yeah. and I like this triathlon person and I like this sober person. And triathlon had built so much confidence in me that I was like, I don't care if even the people closest to me aren't accepting me. I'm not going to not accept myself again. Yes. I was like, yes. I'm, I'm going to claim who I am. And so I did. And in doing so, we began to have some, you know, hardships in our marriage, sure. um, some fights and things. And when we had one of these fights, I went down my, one of my favorite things to do, which is so sad because COVID's going on is going to see a movie. I love movie theaters. Yeah. 
And so we got in a fight and I went down to see a movie and I happened to be in the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Amazing movie. Yeah, it's such a good movie. Yeah, and I remember watching Freddie Mercury come out to his wife and he told her that he was bisexual, similar how I told my wife that I was yeah. bisexual. And then she said, so you're gay? And he was like, well, yeah. And, and when I saw him do that, I said, you know what, if he did that, maybe I can too. And just like the same thing, just kept repeating itself over in my life. Yeah. And instead of, and, and when I, since I knew that it worked with sobriety and this huge monsters, sobriety and, um, and triathlon, I knew that it was going to work also with my sexual identity. Um, I looked around and I was like, there have been millions of men who have come out as gay and it's okay. And yes. they're okay. And uh, I knew after I left that movie that very soon it was going to be my time to come out. And uh, after I crossed that Iron Man finish line, I knew for a fact that it was it was going to happen. And so I did. <laughs> Your story is obviously, I mean, it's crazy, you know, like the amount of things that you've had to work through and the amount of things that you've gone through, the trauma that's existed, but yet like, I mean, obviously you were meant to be here. You know what I mean? Like through everything that's happened, like you were meant to do what you're doing now, right? Like there were so many times where you, you may not have woken up, but you did. And you push through and you use that triathlon to finally accept yourself and have that self-love to be able to, to be who you are. And you're incredible. Like this is an incredible story. And people like, I love that you're writing a book. I love that you started your company. Like people need to hear these kinds of stories to know that they too, like if they're in the dark, they can see that the light does exist. Right. And, and then it's not something to be feared. Like, yeah, right. It's something to be embraced. Yeah. Um, well, Mark, I mean, I don't even know where to start. You are an incredible human being. And I am so glad that you are here today doing what you're doing and making a difference in the world and making an impact in somebody else's life. And you're literally going to give life to somebody else. And I think that's, that's tremendous. Um, so we like to kind of wrap up our um, segments with some bigger questions. So uh, what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone who's battling their own identity? I would say that you don't have to go at it alone. You do not have to go at it alone and that you are not alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so reaching out for help is the is the first place that I went to when I was trying to get sober was just going, okay, I need help from another person who's walked this walk before. And, you know, that turned into somebody who became a mentor in my life to help me through um, the steps of sobriety. And then I was struggling with my identity within triathlon, like, where am I supposed to go? How am I supposed to improve? So I reached out to a coach. I didn't go at it alone. I, I sought help. And then when I tried to come out, it was like, oh my God, yes. You know what? You know what works? 
not going at it alone. There's other people who've done it. So I reached out to other men who had come out and I said, you know, how did you do this? What about the kids? What about relationships? What about your families? And that's the only way that I was able to truly begin accepting and having, having the confidence. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's amazing advice. So what have you learned about yourself going through your entire journey? Like going through as in talking about it and writing about it? Just the entire thing, like from your childhood to where you're at now. Like what is the big lessons that you've learned about yourself? Well, I think that acceptance is the key to life and mental wellness. And we're all striving for mental wellness from the minute that we are born. We start crying so that somebody will soothe us so that we have a sense of peace and serenity and comfort. And we continue to cry and seek this mental wellness. Well, the only way to find this mental wellness is through acceptance. And the only way when it, when it all boils down to it is that there are going to be some things about yourself that hurt that are not necessarily what you want, that are not ideal. And in those times, in those moments, we have to exercise compassion. We have to be compassionate with ourselves, just like we have to be compassionate with our neighbors. We have to be compassionate with our family members. We have to be compassionate with our friends so that we have a wellness in the community around us. We also have to do that within ourselves with the various things that are moving around inside of us. We have to be compassionate towards those areas, towards those identities, towards our passions and our loves so that we can nurture wellness inside of ourselves. Absolutely. That was profound, friend. Yes. Um, What do you think, out of everything, I know you've been through quite a bit, what do you think might have been the hardest part about your journey? The hardest part to me was, um, was sending it out, honestly. That was the scariest thing ever. Um, because that's completely against everything that I was taught to do and to be was to express my weakness and show who I truly was. Um, and yeah, that, that was the hardest part. And it's funny because that's also like kind of the easiest part. (laughs) All you have to do is talk, you know? And all you have to do is open your mouth and, and start moving. I mean. Right. But totally like what you're saying, like getting to that first step and getting over that fear, right? Like that's the piece of it that it, that is so difficult. That first step that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What do you hope the takeaway is of your story for our listeners? Um, you know, I hope that the takeaway is to not fear those things inside of yourself that you know you otherwise would shove down embrace those things because somebody else needs those things you know i love that i love that like there's so much there's so much goodness to be done in the world by our vulnerability right by our honestly our honest stories and our 
our truths can really truly make a difference in somebody else's life. And that is the point of this podcast, friend. We just need to all be open and honest and share what is going on so that everybody else like recognizes they're not alone. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is like, you just got to tap into who you truly are. If, if you tap into who you truly are, then you can finally start projecting out the love and the kindness to other people. And then when you do that, then they project back the kindness and love. And we can do this through social media. We can do this through our interactions at the grocery store, on the subway. You know, we can turn this world into a better place. We aren't lost, you know. Right. All we got to do is start tapping into who we truly are and love who we truly love. You gave the most incredible answers ever. I mean, ever. seriously. <laughs> Like my heart's like crazy yes. big right now. I love it. Yay. <laughs> um, okay. So the last thing that we do before we go ahead and say our goodbyes is our fun little pop questions. Um, so our first question for you is if you had to be on one reality TV show, which one would it be? Oh, Desperate Housewives. <laughs> love it. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? Oh, oh, I want to turn into water like Alex Mack. I mean, okay, you you want to know why water? Yeah, yes. So in the um, Dao to Chang, there is one excerpt that goes, best to be like water, for it dwells where everything else disdains. Dude, you are. What's your most used emoji? Oh, I do the little girl that's going like this. Yes. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that one. A lot of blonde moments. I have so many blonde moments all day long. (laughs) Oh my god, I love it. That's great. How do you feel about pineapple on pizza? You know, I actually kind of have started to like it. Really? Uh, really? Yeah. It took me accepting that it was there and just, you know, <laughs> you know what? There is a time for everything. <laughs> that was great. That I haven't found the pineapple acceptance yet. Maybe no, me neither. Me neither. I'm not I know. I used to always pick it off. I'd pick it off and be like, yep, nope. Yep. <laughs> Um, All right. Last question. Are you a morning person or are you a night owl? Oh, I'm a morning person. I go to bed by like 8.30 every night. Yes. We're speaking our language. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, we cannot thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. You are absolutely incredible. The work you're doing with your story is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being unapologetically you. Thank you. You guys are so much fun. I had a great time. We're so happy you joined us and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you. 